The war began with a sudden, unprovoked attack, so shocking that it altered the history of America and brought it into a new century. This terrorist act sparked an outburst of American patriotism and war fever, a moment everyone remembered when the nation came together under their deeply religious Republican president. American troops deployed overseas to avenge the attack, and when they invaded another country along the way, it seemed like a logical extension of the original war. But the new war had some nasty surprises. A quick military victory faded into a horrible guerrilla conflict. The people they'd come to liberate didn't seem to want liberating. American casualties mounted, atrocities stacked up on both sides, and soldiers came home traumatized. The generals and politicians kept predicting victory, but victory didn't come. Opposition grew as the lies that propped the war up unraveled. The anti-war faction were depicted as cowards and traitors, giving aid and comfort to the enemy, stabbing our boys in the back. News media leaks revealed horrible war crimes, war crimes committed by American soldiers in some cases. A sickening torture scandal made for blood-curdling headlines, even as pro-war politicians claimed any violence justified against an inhuman terrorist opponent. The war finally ended on an ambiguous note, and it didn't feel like a victory. People barely noticed because Americans had gotten tired. They had just stopped paying attention, stopped caring, stopped remembering. The war was less forgotten than hidden. But traces of the war still linger, not just in banners and emblems and monuments, but in the violence that came back with the troops. The brutality did not stay overseas. It found its way like a poison into American culture and government and society. The tools invented to defeat the terrorists ended up being used on the people. America might have won the war, but lost a part of itself along the way. Now, what I just described could be the Iraq War of 2003-2011, a war that many of us remember. But that entire narrative, every word of what I said, also fits another conflict. This is the Philippine-American War of 1899-1902, or 1913. This is America's Forgotten War. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Today is a short introduction before Monday, when we kick off the first series of Season 2. Now, this series is going to be about the Philippine-American War from 1899 to 1902, though I will argue the war continued until at least 1913 and maybe even longer. As we'll see, definitions of when a war ends can get kind of fuzzy. Now, this is a war that many of you may know a couple of factoids about. Pretty much the only thing most army guys know is that this was the conflict the M1911 Colt 45 was developed for in order to fight the Moro insurgents. While that's correct, the fact that that's the only thing folks seem to know about this conflict is kind of why I need to do this series. I believe that, relative to the impact it had on our history in many obvious and not so obvious ways, the Philippine-American War is America's most forgotten war. You will find nothing about this conflict in most popular history of pop culture. The Philippine War was a direct result of the Spanish-American War, which is much more famous. But this one was much bloodier, much longer, and much nastier. This series will get pretty grim, and guys, I'll be up front. It gets worse with each episode. Like, some of the stuff in the last episode makes me almost ill. A lot of this will seem very, very familiar to folks who were alive during the early 2000s. The Philippine and the War and the Iraq War are a case of history not repeating, but rhyming, and the rhymes are dark and bloody. 
This war, like the Crimean War, is another one I planned on from the get-go. I was always going to do the Philippine War because I think it's extremely important, especially for Americans to understand. And at the end, I hope you'll agree that you should care, because I'm going to tell you why. So in this introduction, I have a couple of goals in mind. First, I want to give a very basic framework of what this war was and why I'm talking about it. Second is housekeeping. I need to get some notes out of the way. Third, a brief section on the historiography, what books I use, and how the writing on this subject has developed over time. And finally, I'll discuss the central themes, the point of this series, and why you should care. So if you don't know your William McKinley's from your McDonald's McDoubles, great. I won't be long. If not, just hold your horses. On Monday, October 31st, part one of the series will appear on the feed. This will be episode 37, The Philippine War Part 1, American Empire. So if you want to wait, you can do that. If not, I'll be quick. You still here? Cool, let's get going. First, when and where does this story take place? The Philippine-American War takes place at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century, from 1899 to 1913, the very end of the Victorian age and the birth of America's global age. It happens immediately after and is a direct result of the Spanish-American War of 1898. So when is this exactly? The war begins 34 years after the American Civil War is over, so there's still a lot of Civil War veterans hanging around. President William McKinley is a Civil War veteran. And the last battles take place literally the year before World War I. So all the big American generals from World War I, they're like captains and majors and colonels in this story. When this war starts, Queen Victoria, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Tsar Nicholas II sit the thrones of Britain, Germany, and Russia. Queen Victoria passes away during this conflict. Technology-wise, railroads and steamboats are highly advanced, telegraph wires crisscross the world, and electricity is beginning to light parts of some cities. Thomas Edison's gramophone and Alexander Graham Bell's telephone exist, but they're still pretty rare in most circumstances. Even rarer are the first few automobiles and motion pictures, which do exist in this time period. By the end of this conflict, the Wright brothers will have made their famous flight, 1903, and the Titanic, 1912, will be at the bottom of the ocean, along with Leonardo DiCaprio. This is once again a time period with a lot of names you might recognize. Most prominent is Theodore Roosevelt, who will be a major figure throughout the series and will become president in the course of the series. I am also pleased to announce that Teddy will be voiced by another guest in this series, a longtime fan and supporter named Evan D. So look out for that. Thanks, Evan D., for the stellar bully participation. So who else we got? Mark Twain is America's most famous author and another prominent figure in this series. Susan B. Anthony, Annie Oakley, Andrew Carnegie, Booker T. Washington, John Philip Sousa, Thomas Edison. This is their age. Famous Europeans include the musicians Richard Strauss and Giuseppe Verdi, Dr. Sigmund Freud, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, the authors Leo Tolstoy and Oscar Wilde and Rudyard Kipling and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, Tolstoy's still kicking around. He's old at this point, but he's still alive. People are still upset at Arthur Conan Doyle for seemingly killing off his famous character, Sherlock Holmes, before he brings him back later on. Hitler is an unknown Austrian preteen with a chip on his shoulder, and Joseph Stalin is in his early 20s. So that's when this happens. So what is the Philippine-American War? What is this thing I'm talking about? Just a quick summary. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. 
Spoilers. So, in 1898, after a dispute over Cuba and the explosion of an American warship, the USS Maine, the United States went to war with Spain. The Spanish-American War was a blowout victory for the United States of America, and they took possession of most of Spain's colonies, including the large Southeast Asian island chain known as the Philippines. But the Filipinos had been fighting the revolution against the Spanish for years, and they were not willing to trade one colonial overlord for another. All this is in Part 1, American Empire, which ends with the first shots being fired between the U.S. Army and the forces of Emilio Aguinaldo's Philippine Republic. The Philippine War was fought in two phases. The first phase lasted throughout 1899, as the Americans and Filipinos waged a conventional war with stand-up battles. America is trying to conquer and force the Filipinos into, into compliance and integration into the new American empire. Despite winning most of the battles, the U.S. Army had severe issues. Still, though, the Americans seemed to defeat the Filipino resistance by the end of 1899, with their armies dispersing and Aguinaldo fleeing into hiding. This part is described in Part 2, Philippine War Part 2, Episode 38, Shock and All. But this victory was deceptive. With their field armies defeated, the Filipinos waged a long and bitter guerrilla war all over the islands, causing far more American casualties and consuming far more resources than the conventional war. But American officers successfully employed new tactics and methods of counterinsurgency, capturing Aguinaldo and turning the tide by mid-1901. But the war still wasn't over. This is all in Part 3, Philippine War Part 3, Episode 39, Hearts and Minds. The defeat of the main Filipino insurgency did not end the fighting, and as the situation got more difficult, American tactics became more brutal, culminating in a series of infamous atrocities in Batangas province and the island of Samar. And the Moro War of 1902-1913 was even worse, resulting in the worst atrocity of all at a place called Budbajo. And by examining how America reacted when these war crimes came to light, how America grappled with the reality of the Philippine War, we will learn why the Philippine War is America's most forgotten conflict. That will be part four, A Howling Wilderness. So those are the events I will cover in the next four episodes. And as I do with all my series, I will have supplemental short rounds, including, at the end, a brace of loose ends that I didn't have time to fit. Each off week between the main episodes will have a short round. The first, between episodes one and two, part one and two, will be called Uncle Sam's Imperial Army, giving details about the American soldier of the Philippine War. The second, between parts two and three, will be a featurette on the Buffalo Soldiers, the African-American soldiers of the conflict. The third, between parts three and four, will be the women of the Philippine War. And the last couple short rounds at the end of the series will be surprises. Now that's established, let's clear some stuff up. First, the name of the war. This conflict has been called many different things by many different people. Most American sources refer to it for a long time as the Philippine Insurrection, but I avoid using that term because it implies a rebellion against lawful authority, which automatically assumes that the United States was the rightful owner of the islands, which, you know, was kind of the point in dispute, so it's kind of a biased name in my opinion. So I will refer to this conflict by the more modern names of either the Philippine War, or if I'm feeling like I have more words in me, the Philippine-American War. Traditionally, the war was supposed to have lasted from February 4th, 1899, with the first shot being fired, to July 4th, 1902, 
when President Theodore Roosevelt declared the war ended. But the trouble with those dates is that the fighting in the Philippines did not end on July 4, 1902. There was still a whole lot of warfare, prominently against the Moros, the Muslim peoples of the southern Philippines. The United States fought the Moro War from 1902 to 1913, and while it is often treated as a separate conflict, I am including it as part of the overall narrative. Far as I'm concerned, the Philippine War lasted from 1899 to 1913. Yay, just in time for World War I. Got it? Moving on. Philippine War plus Moro War treated as separate conflicts, but they're both part of this series. Throughout this series, I will refer to the people of the Philippines very generally as Filipinos. This is despite the fact that most of them did not consider themselves Filipino at the time, and probably identified more as part of an ethnic, regional, or religious group. When I say Filipino, I am not implying that that was how they saw themselves or that was their true identity, but more that they just happened to live in the Philippines. It's a geographic descriptor, not an identitarian descriptor. Just sacrificing complete accuracy for clarity. Other than that, whenever possible, I will use local or period-accurate names for all places and people, and in particular, I will refer to the Philippine Republic's president with his Spanish pronunciation, Aguinaldo, and not the English version, which is pronounced Aguinaldo. It's, that's not the accurate pronunciation. I'm going to do my best on all the other pronunciations. Most of them have Spanish names, and I'm usually pretty good with those, but if I butcher them, that's on me. Finally, there is a certain word that certain Americans use in this time period to refer to certain people. This is the N-word. I am not going to say the N-word. I'm not dumb enough to be the white podcaster who uses the N-word. What I will do is just use the term N-word. And if I use it in a quote, I will use the still rough but less terrible term Negro and say later on, yeah, that was actually the N-word. So that's settled. I'm not going to say it, guys. I'm not that brave. I'm, I'm pretty brave. But I'm not that brave. Or stupid. Or I think it's actually really bad for me to use that word in general. I think it's a rotten word in the mouths of someone like me. So I'm just not going to do it. If you got an issue, let me know. Send me hate mail. Moving on. Finally, geography. Most of this series will be taking place in the Philippines. And guess what? Most people do not know where all these islands and towns and mountains are. But that is okay. I have maps on my website and social media for you to reference. These are new, improved maps I have created with software instead of drawing them by hand. The links to the maps will be in the description of each episode, so that's where you can find them. All the battle sites will even have some nice little arrows on there for maneuvers and stuff, you name it. Now, we need to talk a little shop real quick. The Philippine-American War will be one of the more difficult stories to tackle in this podcast, because unlike my other series so far... Large parts of this conflict don't involve big armies maneuvering and fighting battles. There's not a lot of cut-and-thrust narrative sometimes. There's no climactic Culloden or Myongyang or Balaclava in the series. Because the Philippine War by early 1900 had become what we military folks call a counterinsurgency campaign. So the narrative will at some points be very general, describing the warfare as a broad experience, unless this unit moved here and attacked there. Because in a counterinsurgency campaign, the war is hundreds of little battles, hundreds of little combats, rather than a few big combats. Counterinsurgency is a word I will use in a lot in the last half of this series. If you don't know what it is, at its most simple, counterinsurgency is the art of war against guerrillas or regular opponents. In short, insurgents. Counterinsurgency is how modern states try to defeat a guerrilla war. 
what counts as a counterinsurgency war? You, you know some examples. America's had quite a few. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, all counterinsurgency wars. The British had one in Ireland during the Troubles, another in Malaya in the 1950s. Uh, the French had some in Algeria. The Russians have some in Chechnya. There's a, there's a whole long list of them. These are counterinsurgency campaigns where a larger dominant power is occupying a region and having to fight a guerrilla war within that region. Just so you know, we will be talking about counterinsurgency in this series a lot, especially in episode three, and it will just be a different kind of war than you're used to hearing about in this podcast. But a lot of Iraq and Afghanistan vets will probably think a lot of this sounds a little too familiar. Now, I'm going to take a real quick dive into the historiography. Bear with me. There is a surprising amount of literature about the Philippine-American War. The problem is that it's just not widely available or widely read. You are unlikely to find it at Barnes & Noble because it's not about D-Day or ancient aliens or whatever. But for most of American history, folks who did write about the Philippine War, not many, but those who did, tended to view it through the rosy lens of American patriotism as an American triumph of civilization over savagery, with some regrettable excesses, but such as war. Well, that is, if Americans thought about the conflict at all. Most of them forgot. Most of them forgot, like, all the crazy stuff that happened. So the Philippine War usually ended up being, like, an addendum or a short epilogue to the Spanish-American War, an afterthought. Oh yeah, we, we, we defeated Spain, charged up San Juan Hill, remember the main, we won. Oh, and there was that one thing in the Philippines, but that was over quickly, no issues. And what you'll see in the course of this podcast is that no one wanted to talk about it. Like, there was a code of silence. One officer remembered trying to present a paper on the conflict in 1938, only for the editor to send it back, saying, straight up telling him that the paper would bring light to a conflict best left forgotten. Like... We don't want to talk about this war. Let's just let's just leave it where it lies. The overwhelming narrative of the Philippine War is a justified conflict against uncivilized rebels. Basically, the America good viewpoint, but don't look too hard, is best represented in Leon Wolf's 1961 book, Little Brown Brother. That's the overriding narrative from most of American history. Eh, we won the Philippines, just just don't talk about it. We we prefer not to think about that war. Why though? Well, in the 1960s, many people found the Philippine War very current. The image of American soldiers fighting the Imperial War in Southeast Asia was deceptively similar to the Vietnam War, though these two wars honestly had very little else in common. People seemed to wake up like, oh, oh, we've done something that looks like this before. A new generation of American historians, often called the New Left Historians, looked at the Philippine War through the lens of the Vietnam War, and this skewed their judgment a bit. They accentuated Americans' bad conduct, tortures, war crimes, racism, and imperialism. And the, a lot of these were evident, but sometimes they got exaggerated. This was basically the America bad viewpoint. And as we'll see, there was plenty of reason to think that America did not cover itself in glory in this conflict. But this, um, like the America bad idea, has been the tenor of most popular history of the war ever since, especially Howard Zinn's famous counterculture book, A People's History of the United States, which does briefly touch on the war. The best professional historical example is Stuart Creighton Miller's 1982 book, Benevolent Assimilation, which goes very hard on the America bad angle and with, like I said, justification. 
I find more measured assessments in H.W. Brands' Bound to Empire and Stanley Carnell's In Our Image. We'll still take a cynical view, but a more balanced one, and it doesn't just hammer home the America's bad, you should feel bad's angle. I want to make up this very clear up front. The point of this series is not America bad. America will do bad stuff in this series. I want to be very upfront about that, and I will make sure that it is not sugarcoated in any way possible. The point of this series is not America bad. The point of this series is basically America needs to face our past. But moving on. Still, I'm still doing the historiography. So in the 1990s and 2000s, a group of revisionist historians examined America's war in the Philippines in a more objective light. Not America good, America bad, more like America did kind of win. They found that American bad conduct had been, well, exaggerated somewhat for effect by the new left historians. Now, in my opinion, some of them go a little bit too far in this regard. They, they do a little bit of whitewashing. American conduct in the Philippine War was generally worse than the likes of Max Boot, acknowledge. But they also try to explain why America defeated this counterinsurgency when they failed to defeat others. So they focus more on how and why American policies were ultimately triumphant. The shining example of this scholarship is Brian McAllister Lynn's The Philippine War 1899-1902, published in 2002, easily the best purely military history of the conflict. It's one of my guideposts for this series. Ever since Lynn did his research, there's been a significant uptick in people writing about this conflict from a military and policy angle, including several professional publications within the U.S. Army. But all of these works do have a knee-jerk tendency to get too objective, to downplay the sheer brutality and horror of the conflict. For all of that, the book I can most recommend for this conflict is David J. Silby's recent A War of Frontier and Empire, the Philippine-American War 1899-1902, published in 2009, in my opinion, the most balanced work, though I believe it's still incomplete. There just isn't a really good holistic landmark, landmark work on this war. Maybe I'll write that book someday. Who knows? Of course, there is another side to this conflict. Obviously. Filipino historians have been more or less obsessed with this war and the revolution that preceded it, for good reason. But they've often been less focused on American atrocities and the conduct of the war, and more on the internal and political disputes within the Filipino revolution and its leaders. Makes sense, they're looking at the war from their perspective. The great Filipino historian Teodoro Agoncillo advanced the thesis in the 1960s that the war had been the birth of Filipino nationalism, a true people's war that forged a nation. But this has been challenged, most notably by Glenn Anthony May, people who point to the enormous diversity of the fighting and of the people, and of how complex the war really was, that there was no great national uprising, it was a very regional war. There aren't a lot of comprehensive English-language works from the Filipino viewpoint available to me. I include it when I can, but I only have so much to work with. In some places, I will have to fill in the gaps to get the Filipino side of the story, but I'll do my best. So that's the historiography, a summary of a bit of the research I did in this conflict. That's out of the way. I'm going to finish up with the themes. One smaller theme I'm going to go into is my personal involvement with this story. I've spent about 10 years in the U.S. Army, and before that, four years in the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. And during my career as both a cadet and a soldier, I've run across so many little signs and symbols of the Philippine War, little bits of the hidden history of this conflict. 
from a marble monument overlooking the drill field of my alma mater, to the history of my first unit in the army, to an encounter I had only a month ago. The Philippine War has popped up in small ways throughout my academic and army career, and I will highlight those throughout this series to show how history often hides itself in plain sight. Overall, though, my goal in this series is to answer three big questions. First, why did the United States end up fighting the war in the Philippines at all? The subject of part one. Second, how did the United States win a counterinsurgency war in the Philippines when they lost in Vietnam and Afghanistan? How did the United States, with a much weaker military and much smaller economy, defeat an overseas counterinsurgency in 1901 when we couldn't in 1968 or 2021? Answering that question will be the subject of parts two and three. Finally, why did the United States forget? Why is there this code of silence, this aversion, this almost deliberate ignorance of one of America's most important conflicts, a war that costs more lives than the Iraq War, America's first overseas land war and first counterinsurgency war, a war we won, which should be so relevant in the modern day, but isn't? Why did we forget? That question will be the subject of part four. So why did this war happen? Why did we win? And why did we forget? And these questions will revolve around my central theme of the series, the difference between image and reality, the difference between how Americans see themselves, how the rest of the world sees them, and what they really are, the difference between America good, America bad, or America human, how the United States has built up this gleaming, idealistic, perfectionist image as a beacon of freedom and democracy and liberty, and how our actions in reality have rarely met that image. And what happens when the image and reality collide? What happens when what we see in the mirror doesn't match the image in our minds? American dreams versus American reality. If the United States of America ever wants to be the nation it believes itself to be, it has to understand that it's not, and probably never was. The first step to fixing the problem is admitting you have a problem. But that might be the most difficult step of all. Well guys, that'll wrap up this introduction. So I'll ask you to put on your campaign hat, load some rounds into your crack, and head off into the mountains with me for the next several weeks. It's time to head into the jungles of America's most forgotten war. Dark jungles in more ways than one. See you on Monday, 6 a.m. October 31st, for the Philippine War Part 1, American Empire. Only here on Unknown Soldiers.